did we already discuss to to throw us right into the soup? Or did we already discuss uh, FF Annual fourteen? Because I was reading it, I was like, no. But you've kind of discussed it. Oh, okay. You, you brought it up when we read the first Salem Seven story. Uh, okay. Okay. Because I really was. I was like, motherfucker, did we already? Ah, I've read this again. Why am I reading this again, again? Uh, because it's, it's that good, Jeff. <laughs> you know. That's why. I have to say, there's there is something that's actually sort of really fun about going and looking at these. These annuals, because it's, you know, naturally over the course of like four years. Yes. Oh, you want to do our all. Yeah, yeah, let's do our interest. Sorry, yes. Hello, whatnots. Welcome to Baxter Building, the Fantastic Four themed podcast from Wait What Industries. That's right. I'm pretending <laughs> we're a conglomeration right now. I am one of the CEOs of Wait What Industries, Reed Richards, and with me. It's my fellow CEO, Jeff Lester, but only if the C stands for coughing a lot. So, spoilers. <laughs> I love that I say it comes every Richards, and you don't even react, but you also don't even adopt a different name. No. No, I did not. I'm, I, and, and look forward to enjoying more of this, like, tape-delayed Jeff Lester shenanigans throughout the entire episode. I'm not that sick, but I am so sick that my usual... Two steps behind the wily and fleet-footed Graham McMillan has become a farcical eighteen steps behind. So let's let's just enjoy. Put me on one stereo channel and Graham on the other, and it's like time travel. <laughs> I'm so tempted now to edit this so we're on <laughs> different channels. <laughs> oh, don't don't tempt me. Don't do it, Jeff. We are doing Fantastic Four annuals for a change. We are we are actually doing time travel this time because we're going all the way back to 1979 Holy for the cow. first one and oh. then going through 1984. We're doing annuals 14 through 18 and also What If issue 36, mm-hmm. which is – we'll get there eventually, but I – what I kind of feel is an annual. We'll, we'll get to that mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. Just before we started recording – Jeff was confessing that he's sick, and he really is, you guys. Jeff is surprisingly coughing not well sick, so yeah. we'll keep this to a minimum. But we were also discussing that these comics are shit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, there's actually something that the this batch of annuals, not only as I was telling Graham, did I warn my wife that I needed time to read them all because I, I was afraid that the they would actually give me some level of, of comic book sepsis if I actually tried reading them all in a go. But it, it made me realize, like, annuals are kind of unnatural things. And it's, and it's a shame because the older I get, like, the more I look back fondly on the annuals that are like, hey, here's a huge conglomeration of old stories that we've jammed into 48 pages or 64 pages that we're going to charge you money for, you know, as opposed to the Marvel annuals, which were like, we're going to give you like 
new content and new stories and it's like getting an extra issue of your favorite characters but you know but it's going to be terrible so it, exactly. but this won't be a good comic yeah i i want to speak to this as well because issue 18 ff annual 18 i bought as a standalone in i want to say a san diego comic-con a couple of years ago maybe three years ago oh, interesting because i have happy memories of annuals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as like you know they're standalone issues right but if you get them and they're by good creators, you're like, this is just going to be a satisfying chunk of comic. Right. You know, it's a done in one. I like the creator. It's in a particular era where I like the book. This will be great. Mm -hmm. And Annual 18, spoilers, I really don't like. Mm -hmm. And I remember Annual, Annual 18 here when I got it in San Diego being like, oh, annuals are shit. Right. Right. And I'm like, I, 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 I have this undeserved nostalgia for annuals because this is really quite terrible. Well, you know, the thing that I think is kind of interesting, and I know this is where we're going to split, is uh, of the four annuals that we're covering, two of them are by George Perez, and Perez actually co-plotting them. And on paper, this seems like uh, not a bad idea. Like, I kind of get the idea, like, Perez is a dude who likes doing detailed pencils, uh, and is not the kind of guy who, for the most part, he can only prop up a monthly book, uh, you traditionally for short periods at a time. I say that because actually later in the 80s, he manages to somehow hit his speed or get the right number of assistants. They does a pretty good long run, but for the most part, it's like he can only do about a year worth of a book and then, you know, the tops of his hands blow off and he has to spend time out of sight recovering. So for myself, who has, who, re, who I learned after the fact that a lot of my favorite books from Marvel in the 70s were bi-monthly books. And part of what was good about that was it, they, in many cases, were good showcases for artists who weren't actually fast enough to draw a monthly book. In theory, an annual, if it gives you the opportunity to like, oh, you know, let's just say that, you know, you get like an annual, but it's by like Barry Windsor Smith. That would be fantastic in theory. But um, I think that there's just there's so many problems uh, sort of inherent to the idea of the format that, you know, unless you I think and again, this is perhaps unsurprising but for someone like me, like the closest you can really get to um, beating the annuals is if you've got someone like Steve Englehart on Avengers, where he's more or less doing the giant size Avengers and they're tightly, tightly plotted into the, the comic continuity. So he kind of more or less uses them as the big finales for his big for the big yeah. stories. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of that's where that that concept really seems to sort of hit its bloom. But otherwise what you get are kind of bottle episodes, you know, well, that, that kind of speaks to these. So there are five issues. We're talking five annuals. We're talking about here. Yeah. If you count the what um, if, which they, I think is smart. Well, six, if you count the what if, cause there's 14, 15, 16, 17 and 18. Oh, is right. five. I can't count. Yes. Okay, Math is hard when you have a culture, <laughs> but of the, of the five annuals, the first two, 14 and 15, the ones that are co-plotted by Perez. Yeah. Um, 
feel very much like the bottle episode that you're talking about. They feel very much like filler issues, right. and and that they have no, you know, no reason to exist beyond the money. Mm-hmm. Seventeen and eighteen, which are both written by Byrne and one of them is drawn by Byrne right. in the Byrne era of FF, are genuinely trying to do something quote unquote ambitious. You know, uh, seventeen is a, a sequel to one of the earliest FF stories. Uh, eighteen is, you know, this is important for the entire Marvel universe. You know what? This is interesting. I... We're going to be disagreeing right off the bat because because I think the interesting thing about seventeen is how Burn more or less figures out how to pace seventeen in a way that works for him. I suppose. Like, I see your point about 18, and I definitely agree well, with it, but 17 is clearly what I'm going to Oh, I'm the worst. <laughs> so sorry. What, guys, I, what I was going to say is, while he's trying to be quote-unquote ambitious, uh-huh. the, it also doesn't really work. Right. Like, it's it runs into exactly the same problems that, that 14 and 15 have, mm-hmm. in that in being closed off from the, the, the regular series and in having the limitation of page count, that it still runs aground. I think 18 especially runs aground, and it is, it's just kind of a, a disaster of an issue, despite the quote-unquote important things in it. I think 17 is actually the best of the comics that we're going to be talking about today. I, I'm actually highly inclined to agree with you. I really am. Uh, although, the we'll get to the caveats. But but yeah, the this, this 17 for me, the thing that I think is interesting about it that makes it work almost is for me, and we'll get there when we get there, is, is that it's almost uh, people who've heard our other episodes of the Baxter Building will hear me um, carp about Burns pacing and how it, it's the time it started off is just tightly wound and on point and then sort of seems to fall out of step as far as I'm concerned. And and what I liked about 17 was the way that it reads like that that Burn takes the first half of the story and decompresses it, you know, so the first half of the sequence with with Sharon takes up more or less what would be almost a full issue. And then the second half of the book is the FF. And interestingly yeah. enough, for me, it's this it's the second half of the of the issue where Burn kind of mm, just lo- either loses interest or uh, the pacing isn't quite as oh, yeah. tight. But the first I, I, half I, of it agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we'll get there eventually, but yeah, seventeen works because the first half of the story is a horror story, and it's an effective horror story, right? Well, exactly. It's an effective horror story because Byrne opens up the pacing and the storytelling, and then and then it works. So yeah, let, let, let's start in 1979. Yeah, when things were simpler, and let's be honest, comics were just genuinely worse. Judging by <laughs> Fantastic Four Annual 14, right? Catspaw. <laughs> you you may remember, longtime Baxter Building listeners. That I thought the Salem Seven were kind of uh, cool is putting it a bit strongly, but I like Salem Seven uh, more <laughs> for me because this story, this is the return of Salem Seven, is just, just staggeringly bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it is written was plotted by Marv Wolfman and George Perez, with a script by Wolfman and pencils by Perez, inks by Pablo Marcos, and it's just—I mean, it's it's 
it's amazingly generic. And I don't know if it's amazingly generic because it is just generic or because we've been reading the burn stuff. And the burn stuff does really like this feels like a very different era. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it really feels, feels like a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but absolutely agreed. Uh, uh, it's, it's it's really strange because it feels like by the time you get to the burn stuff, or maybe it's just me with my bad memory. You're in a particular. You're in the 1980s. Uh, Fantastic Four mindset, right. and the way that FF works, at least for me. You remember sort of the Lee Kirby era as like the high point. Right. And now you're in the burn era. And this book just feels like, you know, the lost era where things just weren't as good. <laughs> Did you get that or is that just me? Like this feels like it feels like a museum piece. Right. Uh, and he... it, feel, it feels like a, I mean, it feels like a kind of shitty issue of Marvel 2 and 1. Yeah. No, it, um, it's 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 really disposable. Uh, and I don't think that there is a – one of the things that I find interesting is is the way that both 14 and 15 have very specific tropes that Byrne ties off in his run. And for a while, I, I, I guess this is the thing that I think is sort of interesting to me is that these two issues gave me an appreciation for um, Byrne. In, in, in as it's as my appreciation for burn has sort of been kind of slipping and struggling you know down the the march of issues but but i think also sort of makes me aware that one of the things for me problematic about burn is is that the things that make him uh good which is more or less seeing what the flaws are in for lack of a better term hackneyed uh, Fantastic Four stories and figuring out ways to tie that off. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the person that sort of has enough eye de- detail and someone who cares enough to stop that is unfortunately the person who who goes on to become Burns' pedanticism grows out of it. So yes, yeah. that, that's one of the things that's really a shame is is that that he is. Even when he's tired, even when he doesn't measure up to his ambition, he's just not going to poop out an issue like Cat's Paw, you know, uh, FF Annual 14. He's he's really not ever going to do it. The problem is, is unfortunately, what he's going to do is going to um, just, un- just be kind of run the risk of being completely entropic being completely completely pedantic and and kind of dull now cat's paw is not an interesting issue at all i would argue that it's everything that 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 wolfman and perez are obsessed with and don't do well like i honestly i realized (laughs) while looking at this that if you think about their run on Teen Titans and essentially well, that's, just, that's what I, I couldn't not think about that because that happens like a year later yeah and and in many ways feels like a reaction against this comic interesting like I feel I feel that what they do in Teen Titans is they earn the soap opera in a way that they do not earn the soap opera in this comic large part of that is the soap opera in this comic is based around Franklin Richards being a day sex is back in it well yes which is one of the things that Byrne goes on to shut down, and you can see why, and is smart. But 
interestingly enough, and I and I I would need to re look at it, but one of the things with Teen Titans for me, it's not so much the soap opera, it's the occult. Honestly, one of the things that's really a shame is Perez has a lot of interest, clearly. He he digs drawing guys in like, you know, hoods and cloaks. He Talk loves boy does he? He really boy, does. He really does. It's something that he's just like, I can't wait to do this. Maybe because I guess it's a way to extend Perez's kind of um uh obsessive sketchiness i don't know it's not it, his 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 love of um patterns and minutiae like you know this is a guy who really clearly enjoys drawing debris and lots of little things that look just like each other you know so give him a suit of armor he's happy give him a collapsing wall you're gonna see rubble like nobody's business and he loves drawing like a cult and the problem, unfortunately, is is that for me, I think apart once you get George Perez past the world of um, character design, he doesn't really have the kind of visual imagination that responds well to occult settings. You know, you're just going to see mystic patterns you know there's so much stuff here you don't like the the fl flaming heads of nick salem oh, i mean do, I, do I, we have to do yeah. we have to even talk about the yeah, plot I, of this comic? I feel like yeah. we probably should yeah let's... Uh, the, the short version of the plot yes the ff the issue starts off in media res the ff are finishing up a fight with the sandman who is in his 1970s redesigned sandman outfit yeah um uh, and they go home only for Agatha Harkness to show up and say, hilariously, you guys have been really busy. Why don't you take a vacation in my crazy witchy town right. of New Salem? Yeah. Stunningly, when they go to New Salem, there's an occult... Uh, what would you say? Like an occult gathering? Yeah. An occult... It, it, it's, yeah, it's basically like a cult Christmas, or it's... I don't know. It's like it's like it's basically a cult Christmas. It's Agatha Harkness is like, hey, remember that town that was magical where you people all got attacked and almost yeah, and killed? Also, but did they not like leave and be like? And then Agatha was like, I no one can ever visit here ever again. I'm hiding it from the world. I sort of feel like she did. Yeah, and then so it's super weird. She shows up and she's like, you guys, right. come for vacation. The tourist industry has really fucking died since I made it invisible. <laughs> right. And I figure if you guys come, maybe yeah. there'll be paparazzi. You know, it could be a thing. Right. Anyway, they go back. There's a cult Christmas. Mm -hmm. Guess what, you guys? A cult Christmas is hijacked mm -hmm. by Nick Scratch, a.k.a. shitty David Blaine Satan. What? Who Dude, gets Graham, what? I'm sorry. There's no, there's no other way to put it. He is – Nick Scratch is basically – W Wario, like if you know your Super actually, Mario Brothers, this one he really is. He really is. Him. He's just like it's <laughs> awesome. He really looks like the if best you, thing. Yeah, if you want to see flaming Wario, then this is your comic. Yeah, it, it's probably it's it's honestly the most that and deciding to write Ben Grimm like the Cowardly Lion are the are basically the highlights of the issue for me. Uh, so anyway, he comes back. Salem Seven also come back. Right, there's a big fight. Yep. they win. But Franklin runs away, and then when he comes back, long story short, Franklin's power of love saves the day at the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they drag it out to make sure that there's a big climactic battle in New York where all the superheroes are like, "Oh man, shit, a mystic portal. Look, look, lots of cameos." Oh, that was my other favorite point part was actually like the classic dick move of Iron Man cuz at one point he's like uh hang he's right next to Nighthawk and Nighthawk says, "Iron Man, can't you Avengers do anything?" And, and Iron Man says, if we could, Nighthawk, don't you think we would? We're as helpless as you defenders. And I'm like, ooh, what a burn. You know, because it really is like, <laughs> we're so powerless, we're you. It's like, ah. Shit. Oh, but to be fair, I feel that Nighthawk would be like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, right, exactly. Nighthawk's like, point taken. We're both millionaires. All I've got's a fucking jetpack. You know, you've got that on your feet. I, I, I have like, especially in 79, he's like, yeah, I've got like Hellcats and Valkyrie. Right. And occasionally the Hulk. <laughs> if they remember the Hulk, the member of the team at this point. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I do. I do love that Burn was in that, that uh, Burn that Perez. And again, to me, this is part of the pleasure of Perez is he's like, fuck it. I'm drawn Nighthawk. You know, like you can tell that's kind of what Perez means when he's co-plotting the issue a little bit. It's like co-plot. I want Wario. I want Salem seven. And there's got to be at least three panels with Nighthawk and one panel of Iron Man so that I can draw his armor again. Well, but it is great. Nighthawk appears in more panels than Spider-Man or Captain America as part of the big hero fights in New York. Yeah. Which is kind of great. The big hero fight in New York, we should say. Uh, Salem 7 go back to the Baxter building with uh, the captured FF Mm -hmm. and they have like Satan power that pushes the other superheroes back but that's okay because Franklin again saves the day with the power of love I'm not exaggerating Mm -hmm. when he saw his parents and friends turn against him he was able to reach that hidden power his love was able to dispel my son's hold in his family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh dear god yeah Oh dear God, indeed. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's. I mean, again, it's just one of those things that is. Uh, you can see how the FF have gotten lost in the wilderness because it's, it's the. Interestingly enough, it if if you're like, well, I'd like to read an issue of the Fantastic Four in which the FF feel like an afterthought. Well. Good news, this is a delightful appetizer for Annual 16, which oh, we'll be discussing Oh, I was going to say, if you weren't, weren't going to say, well, that's Annual 16, I would have been like, Jeff, yeah. never before has an issue of shitty Crystar accidentally been published as Fantastic Four. Oh, my God. I almost uh, – I can't wait to talk about 16. So, <laughs> so 14 uh, we, is – but yeah, like I said – What's that? else to say about 14, really? Like – it's if you like Church Perez art, you'll like it, but eh. um, yeah, if you like George Perez art, you'll like it. And like I said, there's part of me that uh, just the bald faced kind of because they literally do. They have him pull the flat out cowardly lion. Like I do believe in spooks. I do. I do. And it's it's kind of it's one of those little peer behind the curtains where I'm like, oh, that's actually not a bad way to think of. Ben Grimm from this era, if you want to come up with a pocket way to sort of paint him, you know, kind of like, oh, lovable, but a pain in the ass and like a lot of bluster, but kind of a good heart, you know, but also they really play up the comical like, oh, he's a coward or oh, he's easily whatever, you know, it's it's sticky, um, but, you know, yeah, so 
Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's to keep it kind of it's kind of cute, and I, it, right. it is falling on. If nothing else, there's been lots of uh, examples before this of ghosts and supernatural is the one thing that freaks Ben out. Right, exactly. You so know, back so from it, the first so it, appearance of Agatha Harkness. Come to yeah, so it. Yeah. it really does. Yeah, like fit in. You're like, sure, I buy this. Yeah. Um, Fantastic Four Annual number fifteen is from 1980. Oof. It's called Time for the Prime Ten. <laughs> uh, George Perez does breakdowns. Doug Munch does writing. Chick Stone, John uh, Justino, and Espo does finishes. Who is Espo, do you think? Uh, is gosh. it Mike Esposito? It, Mike Esposito would be my guess, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they do finishes. It's it's a comic that will make you think, wow, Cat's Ball was really good, huh? <laughs> It does. It does. Uh, it, it, and that's the thing. There is a way, like, if we only had done a Baxter building where we were just discussing annuals 14 and 15, I mean, you, me, and every one of our listeners would kill ourselves before the end of the episode. But we would also be like, yeah, 14 compared to 15 is kind of... Uh, it's professional hacky FF comics. I'm fascinated by the fact that you were looking at a 1980s issue of the Fantastic Four with Perez and Doug Mensch, who is has written a shit ton of comics. You would think that he would be able to write this in his sleep. Uh, I think he might have written this in his sleep. <laughs> wouldn't it make a honest. lot more sense? You know, um... Let me try and summarize the the plot, although I think that, I don't know, I, I, I think boiling it down is as quickly I, as possible. I, I think you could summarize it very quickly, because the plot of this is astonishingly slight. Yes, it it's uh, essentially the FF are, are hanging out in the Baxter building. Reed has created, uh, one of his inventions actually comes to fruition in that he creates an energy transmitter. Uh, he's super happy about this because it means that he's going to be able to transmit energy across any distance through the simple medium of air or even through a vacuum, which is a qualifier they had to work in there. Uh, and Willie Lumpkin shows up with a package uh, for the FF. They invite him in and Reed's like, ah, that's great. Hang out with that boring Willie Lumpkin guy. I'm going to sit here I'm and, about like, to work. <laughs> and go back to work, which consists of rubbing my head. Uh, and... Then basically the weirdo hijinks uh, start. Things things kind of start to get weird because essentially what happens is Reed invents his energy transmitter at the same time at the other side of the cosmos. The scrolls invent sort of their version of a matter transmitter that connects with Reed's energy transmitter. And they realize that essentially... Reed's invention, although more basic, is also more sophisticated, and it's the key that they need to win in their never-ending struggle between the Kree and the Skrull. And consequently, Reed has unknowingly invented uh, a, the world's, the universe's greatest weapon, and the Skrulls decide that they're going to come, they're going to take it from him, and they're going to use it to take out the Kree and become supreme masters. The thing that is both interesting and painfully, painfully boring about this issue is that the scrolls decide that the best way to get a hold of Reed's invention is more or less to do some sort of 
the kind of low-key mindfuckery that you would find in a Philip K. Dick short story from the mid-1950s, uh, <laughs> which sounds incredibly promising to me on it paper. It's awesome, but it's actually not. It's really not. It's I, I honestly, it was like you're overselling that, because what they really do is they dress up as the Fantastic Four's neighbors. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. Okay, so, so the very first level of it is... Is which I think is great is of course Wooly Lumpkin is Scroll Wooly Lumpkin who manages wouldn't to take out the other members of the FF. But wouldn't it have been great if this issue was just like, oh, Wooly Lumpkin's always been a Scroll? I thought so too. I thought so too. I was like, fuck, that would have been great. You know what I mean? Like that would have been, like, because you know, let's face it, Wooly Lumpkin is. Plus, we never would have seen it coming. But, uh, yeah, no. So one of the things that I actually enjoy is uh, Sue shows up and is like, ah, oh, you're the sexiest man ever, and puts her arm around him and is like, yeah, show me your new invention. Talk all sexy to me. And what's great is, is Reed's like, huh, you know, you feel kind of funny, almost like I'm holding Willie Lumpkin. No, wait, a scroll. <laughs> I, I do that. love that. That it's so, that all of a sudden it's Willie Lumpkin. Then they're like, nope, actually a scroll. I love that Willie Lumpkin was the middle face. <laughs> Me too. Me too. The, I, I mean, because let's face it, one of the things that suck about the scrolls, I realize, is the scrolls have one of the coolest paranoia-inducing abilities, and they have never, ever, ever fucking used it. Hey, secret, uh, secret, no, secret Empire, Secret Invasion. Secret, right. This is actually a pretty good example of kind of what I'm talking about. This, that whole idea of like, oh, hey, here's all these characters that we could be. And Bendis immediately kicks it. I mean, I don't know. I, it seemed to me like there was like, oh, these are the real characters. Or are they? Or weren't they? Or were they? Meanwhile, well, there's not like these... every single fucking crossover for that series. <laughs> was every single crossover not like, oh, is it Mockingbirds or is it a Skrull? Is it your dad or is it a Skrull? Look at your cat. Maybe it's a Skrull. <laughs> right. Which, again, I think that if you if when it's a line wide event, then it's just sort of ridiculous. I think it's dull. It really does. It's like, sure, I bet they're not a Skrull because right. you're not actually going to replace your IP. Just saying. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Because because. Because, well, it's not even the IP, I think. I think the thing is is that no one wanted to risk Clone saga in themselves again. You know what I mean? Like, it, the tease is a great idea, but I feel like the big lesson they learned from the Clone Saga was do not fuck with people who've been collecting comics for anything over two years. Like, under two years, bleh, okay, so that person's a scroll, you know? So it's really easy to be like, uh, this new Spider-Woman, eh, she's a scroll. Of course, I actually love the secret idea behind Secret Invasion that Bendis was like, okay, all right, you guys all thought I was writing people out of character? Fuck no, they were all scrolls. Boom! Fuck you. So, but no, that isn't how it worked out either, is my understanding. But, but again, the series. That's, a, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, no. Like, it, it genuinely is. A, like, you thought I was just a bad writer. No, they're actually scrolls. <laughs> the problem being, he then brings back the real Spider-Woman afterwards and writes her exactly the same. Exactly the same. Exactly. So there's there's nothing you can do. No, there's there's just a variety of... Uh, the scrolls, apart from Secret Invasion, which also, I want to say, Graham, is kind of... Is it Millennium's, the DC crossover that brings yeah, back it, the Manhunters? No, Se Secret Invasion is, is Millennium. Is Millennium, uh, yeah. Yeah, it... Uh, 
but it really is because mm. Millennium was one member of each supporting cast is a Manhunter, right? Which is again sort of sort of a great idea if you can really go the distance with it, you know, and and call the supporting character heard. Uh, and, and, and sadly, the only one who really did it was the Booster Gold series, which had the best reveal. It was getting cancelled. So oh. they were like, oh yeah, his manager, who's been like the primary supporting character all along, is a Manhunter. Wow. And because they were getting cancelled, they're like, yep, done. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, as opposed to like Batman, which was like, it's Commissioner Gordon. No, Commissioner Gordon was kidnapped and replaced by a robot who happens to be a Manhunter. Yeah. You know, and all the other variations on that. Right. Like, it's Lana Lang. Not really. All of Smallville's been hypnotized by Manhunters. Right. Like, all of those. But, you know, Booster Gold actually was able, because it was getting cancelled, to be like, yeah, it's it's actually the guy. Yeah. It really is the guy. Pretty great. So, again, apart from Secret Invasion ripping off uh, Millennium, uh, for the most part, the Scrolls are kind of like, ha ha, we're the Scrolls. We change shape. Here, fight a tree. Fight a little kitty, if you dare. You know, and it's kind of bullshit, which is which is why every time the scroll pop up, everyone always forgets there's only one super scroll. They're always like, uh, here comes a super scroll. I thought there was only shut up. Here he comes. He's got everyone's powers. But I thought he could only have the powers of shut up. You know, so exactly. remember before when they were programmed, so you could only have the Fantastic Force powers and it was a really big deal. And there was one of them. Now everyone's got it. Yeah, basically. basically. Super Scroll sneezed on them. Uh, <laughs> now, now they've all got Super Scroll powers. And that, they're also Amazon awesome. from Justice League. <laughs> like any power you think of, they've got the power. Yeah, right? Like anything. But okay, so to me, like I said, I clearly oversell this, but I appreciate that at, at one point, just as Reed in, uh, in a scene that makes absolutely no sense is able to distract the skull you know stretch his leg out behind him without the scroll noticing because scrolls have apparently terrible peripheral vision oh actually burnt goes on to talk about their terrible vision in an annual so i guess it's canon but uh basically captain marvel pops up and is like i'm here to help you i've got this whole situation going on now here use the energy transmitter you can use it to blow up all those scrolls go do it go now kill them kill them and Reed looks through the little teleporter window that is stretched between these two eras and sees Captain Marvel on the other side. And the Captain Marvel who's in the room with him is like, well, please, clearly that's a fake that they're staging for no real reason. Believe it. So kill him too. Kill him too. And uh, Reed surprisingly is no dummy, but... I love the... I do... Part of me is like, yeah, just do a... Just fucking take the scrolls, take Prime 10... Isolate Reed Richards, you know, and and basically do a three stigmata of Palmer Aldrich, where every time he thinks that he's out, he's just one ring further out of the prime ten, and by the end of it, he just does not know what's real anymore. Anyway, well, here here's the thing that's super interesting about you saying that because short version, Captain the real Captain Marvel comes through the matter transmitter, confronts the scroll Captain Marvel. They punch them. It's all good. And then the Prime 10 show up, go, we are 10 bystanders who have been hanging around outside the Baxter building. Yeah. We're also Skrulls. And then the FF, the rest of the FF show up. Right. And the rest of the FF are acting really strangely. Yeah. And Reed's just like, oh, but I know they're the real FF. And whereas the logical place would be for him to be like, these guys are Skrulls too. Yeah. 
and and the story doesn't go there, which is so strange to me. Yeah. No, no, I know. Weirdly enough, the story then goes and is like, ah, oh, okay, so remember, like, it's not just enough to have one Phil Dick story from the 50s. We're also going to have the other issue that's in the same issue, the other story in the same issue of Analog Science Fiction that uh, Doug Mensch was reading about people who get to go forward in time a couple of hours to actually encounter themselves, tell themselves what to do, point out something with a clock, and also more or less remind them that, uh, oh, I don't know, that they're going to slip on a bar of soap or something. And then they have to go back and do it. Like, remember when that was a news story in 1956? Doug Minch does as well. And that's why it's in 19, a 1980 comic. Uh, it's really weird. And again, I kind of have this thing of like, the the thing that really saddens me is is that it, it, it really honestly does have the potential to be like a crazy piece of total Dickian paranoia. Right. There, there's, there's the ideas in it. Yes. Are great. Yeah. And the story is not. Not even close. And it's one of those things that I think is really interesting and sad. And again, not only does this story again uh, double down on the trope of everyone wants to break into the Baxter building and the Baxter building is the thing that anyone can break into if they give half a mind to again something that Byrne goes on to you know forcefully slam the door on in his run multiple times but it's it's almost as if it would be a better comic without the Fantastic Four in it you know, if it was the story of some scientist or inventor who was dealing... In other words, if this was all sort of dealing with new concepts, they wouldn't quite have the same sort of layering or, the flip side, if they really took the level of trying to craft an actual honest-to-God story out of it rather than, like, here's half a story that's pretty much all you need for an annual go, you know? So yeah, it's 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 a really it's a lousy comic. It it is just a lousy comic. And despite Perez's presence on art, the art perhaps just because he's only doing breakdowns, yeah. it's really dull. Yeah, yeah. There there's no verve to the art at all. It it's it feels incredibly rote and generic. There's no there's no oomph to it whatsoever. Right. Well, because that, that yeah. said, Jeff. Yes. Did you read the second story in the end? Oh, I was going to say, actually, the second story is, I would say, much better than the first and kind of fascinating as fuck in a way. Um, if I say fuck in it, it's the return of Doctor Doom, chapter one, and there, there's like it it gets abandoned. Like yeah. this is a, a, a plot that just utterly goes nowhere. Right. Ever. Well, yeah, because, you know, Burn comes Byrne, in. And it's, Byrne yeah. comes in and it's like, oh, I know how to fix it instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is which is a shame because there's some real interesting stuff going on in the power of the people. Again, you've got Mun Mench writing it. Tom, Tom Sutton is the artist, and at some point, I mean, it's hard to imagine that it's Tom Sutton in many ways because, of course, you think of Sutton and you think of his very lovely uh, inking and delineating on you know dudes like uh, Basima and stuff. And left on his own, it's a lot of times it's a little better than representational, but at a few points, it kind of moves into the level of Ditko levels of representational and are therefore sort of semi-awesome, 
you know. Uh, <laughs> I, I find it very funny that you say that now, considering what the next time oh, was. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, but uh, basically people but, – but the other thing that I think is great is, is that Munch uh, does – He's on better ground in some ways without the FF, you know, for a guy who did stuff like, you know, a beautiful run on Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, and a lot of smaller titles. Uh, his story about Latveria post-Doom that is, again, also a strangely paranoid issue in which Zorba is loathed by the people and has to deal with the fact that there is a, a revolutionary side that is rising up to overthrow him and he knows it and yet can't quite bring himself at first to basically do what he feels that doom would have done, which is, you know, build a spy counter spy and espionage network to try and take things down. Like, uh, well, while Zorba is Doom, like uh, his treatment of Hauptmann, yes, right, is is Doctor Doom. Yeah. like he, he is as abusive and well, dismissive. But but here's the thing that I think is kind of interesting about the story is is that I feel like he doesn't start that way, but the pressures turn him into that, you know, or or not. I mean, in other words, I mean, Mench really doesn't come doesn't. He leaves it actually uh, somewhat ambiguous as to, you know, whether Zorba's failings, whether having let Varia start to slip out from underneath his fingers is a failing of Zorba or is a failing of democracy uh, is kind of, kind of weird. It's kind of... uh, Let's let's just say that it's um, it's hardly a surprising story for 1980 <laughs> when when Ronald Reagan goes into sweep into office and an entire you know a, a lot of people sort of slowly went from leftward to kind of a little more center rightish you know it's it's a it's yeah. a it's a it's it's an it's a really it's an intriguing story, but to me, again, it's intriguing in terms of like, oh, it's got a lot of potential, and there's one amazing page where like Hauptmann is torturing uh, Zorba, and it looks just like something out of a Steve Ditko comic. Um, but you know, by the time that Doctor Doom actually comes back, which of course you know the story kind of has to have, it's kind of a, it's kind of. I don't know. It becomes really rote and bleh. And less well, that's just it. Like, me. Doom's return is the most boring part of that entire story. Absolutely. Yeah, Like, sure. coming back is much more boring than watching Zorba kind of lose his grip, not only on the country, but on himself. Yes, on his own you know, self. And, yeah. that the, and that the story ends with Doom basically being Doom. Yeah. Ha ha, I will take the country back. Ha ha ha. Right. Like, sure. But it's fascinating to me that, like, Munch clearly had a, had an idea of what where he was going to go. Yeah, and it just it never happened. Right. What's interesting as well is this clearly tees up the burn issue where Doom goes back to Latveria with the, with the FF yes. and Zorba has full on fascist. Yes. Um, which you know I think both of us had trouble with mm-hmm. when when 
read the issue. And I'm wondering if we would have had the same response had we read this issue, because it does tee it up. But I think I also would have rather read Munch's conclusion than Burns. I think so, too. I think so, too. I think, well, I say that, but the last couple of pages where Doom comes back, like, honestly, right up to the point of that, where you've got guys stealing Doom's armor, and then Doom himself disappears. I sort of would have been, again, a little happier if they just upped the paranoia of the idea that Doom is going to come back. And it being a comic book series, you're kind of like, well, of course Doom is going to come back, right? Like that you can play into the certainty that the reader has that Doom's going to return so that the idea that Zorba is freaked out by this in a way is is more justified, but you don't yeah, actually yeah, exactly. see it, you know? Yeah, um, it, it reminded me weirdly enough of um, the Death and Return of Superman storyline. Mm. Um, which really, I, I saw people saying this on Twitter this week, but it's totally true, does not get the credit it deserves just for being like a well-written superhero story. Mm-hmm. One of the great things they do during the return is they make a point of saying, oh, Superman's body has gone missing. Right. And then do what ends up being like a four-month faint mm-hmm. of which of these four guys is Superman because you know his body's gone missing. Right. And we've told you the Superman's back. Yeah. So it's one of these four guys before going, oh, it was none of them. Right. Right. Yeah, that's you know? a great thing. And, and they really do lead you all the way up. They, they make a point of saying two of them have Kryptonian DNA. Mm-hmm. Two of them have Superman's DNA. So it's got to be one of these two. Right. You know? And it, it's, it's remarkably well done. And it, you, could, you could have done the same thing here because mm-hmm. Doom's armor's gone. Anyone can show up wearing Doom's armor. Right. But because you know comics, you're like, well, one of them's Doctor Doom. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, that could be Doctor Doom. That could be someone else wearing Doctor Doom's armor. Mm-hmm. You know, what is – and the reader's paranoia mirrors Zorba's at that point. Yeah, right. There's a lot you of know? things you can do with it. I mean, Doom's got like nine bajillion Doom bots, you know, and you can have Zorba's kind of – the idea that he's obsessed and paranoid about this character is really reflected in the idea that, you know, the character's representation is everywhere through Latveria. It'd make it visually really easy to do something like that, where it's kind of like, yeah, you know, reading this, I was like, oh, fuck, let me go back, you know, like somebody write a six-issue, like get Tom King to do a 12-issue series about the fall of Zorba, you know, and the return of Doom, and and make sure that Doom doesn't even show up, except maybe you know you maybe see his hand on the last page or something, you know. And it it's it just was so um, it's just so uh, rich in possibility and so meager in actuality that it's kind of uh, it's 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 comical. It's good old comics, you know. Uh, and it's great because it's sort of the complete inverse of Annual 16, uh, the coming of Dragon Lord, which is... Oh, man. So, Annual 16, the coming of Dragon Lord, I just want to say right now, Jeff, you may or may not have noticed this, is the only annual from this run which is not on Marvel. Yes, Marvel. I did notice. The reason for that is that in a run of bad comics, this takes the biscuit yeah yeah this is more than anything and i'm dating myself saying this 
Do you remember there was like a two-year period where first all of DC's annuals and then all of Marvel's annuals were like, we're introducing a new character in each annual, and by the way, you'll probably never see any of these characters again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's that. Like, dra- the coming of Dragon Lord is a Dragon Lord pilot that just happens to feature the FF. And when I say it just happens to feature the FF, it happens to feature Reed's, Sue, and Johnny, and Steve Ditko's worst thing ever oh the, my the god the steve Ditko draws is amazingly terrible it's, i kind of love how bad it is i love how bad it is i kind of if you in people if you enjoy reading comics for their like hilarious shittiness ff16 is kind of great like honestly, given a choice between if you had to pay me to reread issue sixteen again or uh, annual sixteen or annual eighteen, I would totally take the money and I'd read annual sixteen. I probably hate it, but the other thing that's amazing to me is is and I'm not super over the last couple of years. I've become a little more fully versed a little bit in Ditko's work after he left Marvel the first time. And I say the first time, God only knows, maybe left it during the 50s. But, you know, after after walking after away Spider-Man, from Spider-Man. Basically. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the way in which I, like, the Dragon Lord, whose real name is Raoul Dorn, like, you just see that... Dragon Lord, who apparently has steps out of the Legion of Superheroes. I... <laughs> Again, there's something that there's just what I find fascinating is is the fact that there's so much of this story, and believe me, it goes on. Like if you if it it is whatever the opposite of decompressed storytelling is, be it is it is migraine storytelling. You there's never less than like five panels on the page. Sometimes when something really important is happening you know, nine or 10 panels in the page and Ed Hannigan is expositioning the fuck out of it. And so honestly, I remember like getting like two thirds of the way through this book and being like, wait, there's fucking more. Like I could not believe this goes on as everything about this is so uh, terrible in a spectacular fashion. Yeah. Uh, Ditko's art is wonderfully sloppy i mean genuinely great in its sloppiness yes uh my favorite my favorite part outside of the terrible terrible thing and some really amazing character designs and i i don't mean amazing in a good way um is you see the ff out for breakfast and franklin is wearing a suit and bow tie yes because that's how stiffco thinks that five-year-olds dress i love that so much yeah yeah yeah. Um, but, I mean, think about it. The creative team is Ed Hannigan writing. Yeah. Uh, Steve Deco drawing and David Anthony Craft editing. Oh, my God, yes. Right. As I like as I like to think of this issue, this issue is so bad that it's the reason there is no FF annual the next year. <laughs> it could well They're be. Like, if that's the best that we could do, yeah. Yeah. Then, then we should just stop. But, I mean, the character designs in this are wacky as shit. Yeah. Yeah, like, they're... really amazingly... Part of me did wonder if this was a, a toy line. A, like, an attempt to tie in a toy line. Because the character designs are so... I mean, you've got the Dragon Lord, who is fairly generic-y dis- Ditko, right? Yeah. But then you've got the other, like, characters from the Dragon Lord's words, 
who are fucking insects people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, there's so many things that you have to wonder. Honestly, this was the book that I went and tried to look up for any sort of research online to see if there was an interview oh, with Ed Hannigan or anything. I went, I went to see, first of all, as soon as I finished, whether the Dragon Lord ever, ever appeared again. Because <laughs> the last, the end of the issue is uh, a caption that says, Want to see more of Ral Dorn and his friends? If so, Dragon fans, write and tell us. Dragon Lord never appeared again, Jeff. Yes. Ever. <laughs> he, he appeared in two different Marvel handbooks. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. There was it's... never another appearance of these characters because there are no dragon fans. That's it. Someone should totally fucking resurrect these characters now. Oh, yeah. The the other thing that's kind of insane is there was a dragon lord that appeared, I guess, a few years earlier by... Oh, later. There's a, there's one that appears later as well. The, the, char- the name has been used a bunch. Oh, right. So there's Bill Everett's character. There's the character that pops up in Submariner. That's not the character I'm talking about. Because Steve Ditko dra- does an entire different dragon lord with Marv Wolfman for an yeah. issue of like Marvel Premiere or something yeah. that literally only appears once and the... And was clearly widely seen and appreciated by a much larger margin of the internet. Uh, because you go online and it's like, oh, there's a lot about that character. And this character is literally, he exists. The end. Well, I mean, everything about this is great. So <laughs> the, do you want to attempt to pronounce the name of his villain? Of his of, of Raldorn's oh, nemesis? Oh, that was the best. I laughed so hard. I laughed. Cracker, 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 core. <laughs> S-K, and this is all one word. S-K-A-G-E-R-A-C-K-A with an umlaut. K-O-R. Oh, Skagger Crocker, the Dragon Lord. Yes, he's not just a piece of Ikea furniture. He's also... Um... He's the most exalted of the Hudaks. Yeah. I, I actually... It's, it's nuts. His planet is called, like, Ragnarokokor. Yeah, exactly. Like, they really it's doubled down so on it. There's so much about this that it's just... I can't believe anyone thought, yeah, we can make a series out of this at the end. I yeah. know Ed Hannigan was on cold medication, and oh, I guess yeah. we've got to put something out, so right. sure. We should also say that the, I guess, big return of this issue... Is that Raldorn is a dragon lord, but he doesn't have a dragon until he meets Dragon Man, mm-hmm. and then they then Dragon Man uh, bonds with them. Oh, you know because- that actually reminds me. One of the weirdest things about this book is not just the idea that that this is utterly the most terrible, unmarketable idea ever put onto paper, but I'm halfway convinced that James Cameron then stole half of it for, for Avatar. Avatar. Yeah, because all the dragon fucking you want is clearly implied in here. This is all about dragon fucking sort of the same way that, that Avatar was about dra- dragon fucking. And it's kind of amazing. I, have uh, you been watching the porn version of Avatar instead of the real thing? I don't know what you're talking about, Graham. <laughs> no, seriously. I don't know what you're talking about. Seriously. If you gotta you gotta go. Like he fucks the dragon. That's an important that is like an essential part of the plot of Avatar Graham. I'm not even exaggerating. I it's been so long since I've seen it, I quite I I'm He's ready got to it, believe his it. tail has to connect with its tail and then he masters it and they bond. Really? 
Really? Yes. Oh my god, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I'm sort of like I'm honestly blacked that out. My, I remember watching Avatar. I remember thinking Avatar is good, and then I had to do a, a press thing for like the DVD release. Uh huh. And it was they flew me down to LA, maybe they flew me to somewhere, mm-hmm. and it was a day of James Cameron talking about the technology that made the film, yeah, and how excited he was about the world building, mm-hmm. and that I swear to God made me I think have like a fugue state and forget everything about Avatar. Oh yeah, yeah. Because literally, like James Cameron, bless him, is a very excitable man, <laughs> but he's so excitable that it feels like you're being shouted at, and then your brain just shuts down. <laughs> That is the best, easily most believable characterization of James Cameron. I totally 100% buy and subscribe. will subscribe to your newsletter, Graham McMillan. So, yeah, one of the things that's kind of insane is, is that the Dragon Lords... Well, okay, the most insane thing to me is how much this story more or less steals um, Shade the Changing Man the the plot of Shade the Changing Man wholesale uh, to the point where I honestly am confused as to whether Ditko was like, yeah, I want to tell that story because I never really got the chance to kind of wrap it up the way that I wanted to. And spoilers, uh, I didn't actually make it all the way through Shade the Changing Man, so I don't know if he actually did or didn't. But all, yeah, all the pieces are there kind of right down to, you know, the superior officer that everyone trusts is the guy who's the actual baddie. Yeah, and also the character designs are not unlike the Shade the Changing Man's designs either. Yeah, right. They're not unlike, but they're also not entirely like. One of the things that I love is is that in Shade the Changing Man, um, Shade's got a female companion who loves him and refuses to believe that he could actually be guilty. And the more she investigates, the more she's torn as to whether he's guilty or not. There is a character that more or less, Lalik, who more or less fulfills the same role and again is mentioned as uh, Raoul Dorn's constant companion as they train to become dragon lords together. But whereas, well, let's just say that Steve Ditko, who has more or less gotten a rap for drawing homely women, may have decided to take an unfortunate end run around that little problem and draw a love interest. Yeah, that is basically an (laughs) insect lizard dragon woman whose face looks kind of like a banana fuck the mantis. So it's... It's... I mean, this, this comic is amazing. We, I will put multiple images from this in the show notes because visually this comic is staggering. It is. Like, you, you can't quite believe this comic saw print in 1981. Yeah. Like, genuinely, I can't quite believe this comic saw print in 1981. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just... If nothing else, I'm going to put some of the wonderful Ben Grimm's in there because... Oh, yeah. I I don't actually know what happened here at all. <laughs> <laughs> it, I, I just don't. I actually half wonder if um, Ditko was like, "I'm going to draw this FF," and he and he basically more or less refused to read the comics and more or less went out and watched the kind of atrocious, oh, the, the cartoon? Freeling cartoons. 
you know. Yeah, I, 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 I would not be surprised because I mean it's it's wacky. It's, it's the weirdest fucking comic, Jeff. Yeah. But despite that, boring. You know, I guess I it's it's boring except for how terrible it is. Once you factor in kind of how terrible it is, it's um it's a stunner. But yeah, it is dull. Um I love the fact that that one of the things that Star-Lord is at the end at uh, Star-Lord Dragon-Lord at the end, this is this is my big spoiler because his whole thing, once Dragon Lord has managed to prove his worthiness uh, by challenging in the rights of battle and defeating Scraggle Hackscapabor, uh, is he's more or less hooray. Now I can fly off and find who uh, my real father is. And it's boy, like, boy, we can't read to, wait to read those adventures. It's so clear that his dad is Johnny Storm because Johnny Storm has nothing but open contempt for dragon lord throughout the entire comic like in some weird unfounded grudge way that you only know is because he secretly realizes that this is going to be his completely <laughs> I, I swear to god that is the greatest piece of jeff speculation <laughs> that we've had in the longest time because johnny doesn't like Raldorn. he's his father yeah i mean it's kind of clear it's kind of clear he's got he, come on graham you follow me here you know the disgust <laughs> that your father has when he looks you in the eyes you know what i'm talking about <laughs> <laughs> oh tonight on graham and jeff far too much away about their, their <laughs> also there's also a great side effect that comes from because uh this was not on marvel unlimited uh i had to resort to the git core version of it which has the ads uh which is wonderful because not only is this one of the worst comic books ever put on paper but as a bonus you also get the worst hostess fruit pie ad comic that i think oh, the has hulk ever run the Fumi Goonies. yes the hulk versus the Fumi Goonies. it it is so... We are the Fumi Goonies. You're all the hostages of the revolutionary governments. <laughs> the great part is is that this is... The advertisement is, isn't even the whole... Is 90% the Hulk the TV show. So you've got... Oh, yeah, the Hulk is in one panel. Yeah, he's in one panel. And the rest of the time, it's like a, a very sulky banner. We don't know if it's David or Bruce. Uh, who's thinking about... Becoming a mailman, and then the revolution, the Fumi Goonies, the the revolutionary government jump in. Hulk's going to grab them, kill them. The kid goes, "No, Hulk, don't give him our hostess fruit pies." And the revolutionary, who have already lost, are we surrender for fruit pies? And then later, after the police have put the Fumi Goonies behind bars, they're like, "Real fruit filling, mmm, delicious apple." This cherry's better than any pie I've ever had. So, this, the moral of this story <laughs> is rob a post office, you will get fruit pies. It's not like the fruit pies are held back. Yeah, but, but no, but no. The fr they do have to pay for the fruit pies because the last panel is banner. 
David or Bruce saying, I'll send the Fumi Goonies a bill for the kids' house as fruit pie. Will send. Will send. He never sends that. It's very clear that that rightfully (laughs) David Banner walks into the post office and is like, post offices freak me the fuck out. Like, he was like, oh, I'll get this job. And he he steps inside. I love that. Yeah. What a great outdoor show to apply for. No enemies except for a yapping dog or two. And then as soon as he said, he goes, but mailmen are civil servants. There'll be questions, forms, tests. Yeah. Yeah. You can just see he's flipping the fuck out. So, I mean, basically, if you think about this comic, realistically, the Fumi Goonies are essentially the heroes because by breaking in and distracting Banner and basically giving them a reason to hulk out for good reasons, they're basically rewarded with, you know, a, a delightful time uh, in the local penitentiary where they get to eat as much fruit pies as they want, which admittedly in 1980 and let's face it, probably right up until about 2015 or so, I would have been like, that's a good deal. I'm down with that. That is, <laughs> if I got to go to, if I had to be in prison for life, but I got unlimited fruit pies. Uh... It's not unlimited fruit pies, though, Jeff. You don't know. It... They still have them in prison, Graham. Why does the kid offer them in the post office and then they're still eating them in prison? Because they take a long time to eat them. Oh, God, they're revolutionaries. Man. They take a bite. They're like, I love, oh God, this is the fucking greatest fruit pie. No, down with the system. Oh, but this fruit pie, oh, oh, should I take a second bite? And it takes them like 22 minutes just to have a fruit pie. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but that theory is absolutely as valid as mine. Anyway. I'm just, I'm just going to yeah. say, you can tell that uh, FF Annual 16 is great by the fact that we have spent as long talking about Ooh. the fucking hostess fruit pies as we have the actual comic. And the fucking Moon Knight ad. Did you see the Moon Knight oh, ad? Oh, which is so good. That is so the good. best. Oh. Uh, shall, shall we do a reading of this advert? I want to hear your Daredevil. That's that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> hey, Daredevil. What do you think of Moon Knight? Personally, I can't see him. That was a good Irish. It's Matt Murdock Irish. Anyway, it goes, but you can. Every month, the news stands everywhere. Human Torch, what do you think of Moon Knight? He's not so hot. But he is found in newsstands everywhere. Hulk, what do you think of Moon Knight? Don't buy his comic book. Buy Hulk's comic book. Or else. Okay, okay. Become we mentioned that Moon Knight is found at the same newsstands? No! <laughs> See, we, they should have done that for every single fucking comic. It's great. Right? It's so good. I also love that, like, we can't sell Moonlight on its own, like... He never appears in the ad. You don't know what he fucking looks like. It's great. They're like, here's three pieces of clip art. None of them are Moon Knight. Build me a Moon Knight ad. You have six and a half minutes. Go. (laughs) Make sure you you can't tell anything about Moon Knight from this ad as well. (laughs) All you know is Moon Knight is a comic. Fucking, you know, you a, a. I will bet you anything that Marie Severin put this ad together. B did oh, it to really? amuse. I was to say Larry Hama. Oh, maybe that's actually a good question. Oh shit! You know what? Honestly, you now make me want to go to a convention for the first time in forever. Because I'd be like, fight Larry Hama and ask him. Yeah, Larry Hama. It really does. In some ways, it sort of reminds me of what's going on with Cracked. But on the other hand, the insouciance. But see, both Larry Hama and Marie Severin can draw. Like this is probably like Mike Harlan after Mike Carlin after he's been sniffing glue or something. Well, know? Carlin was was doing crazy at that point. 
And he so it really might be. Can't really draw, yeah. So I don't know. He, okay. Oh, can can he draw? I don't know. I I can he? Mm. he he definitely tried. He definitely had had some cartoons in, in crazy for a while. Oh, did he? They weren't they weren't good, but he definitely had some. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I don't know. Well, anyway, so all we can say is people like depending on what your tastes are, FF16 is either a can't miss or a dear God do not. Do please miss, please, please. Miss. Yeah, no, it is. It, it's the latter. It's uh, hey guys, do you like comics? Do you like Steve Ditko? If you want to keep liking comics, Steve Ditko, don't read this comic. I and yet at the same time, at the same fucking time, instructive is all hell. Uh, so yeah, then Fantastic Four Annual Seventeen, which is done in no, no, no. Is what it is if? the oh is what if in there? The what if? What if comes in 1982, which is the uh, year there is no annual? I see. And because it is written and drawn by Byrne, part of me wonders whether it started as an annual. Right. And then they're like, but it's a fucking what if story. Stick it in what if. It's a double-sized issue. Right. Well, I don't know. It's kind of – right. It's. I, I remember the what if stories as being sort of – weren't they always – sort of annual sized basically which is why there's usually two stories in the issue what? generally I, I i mean maybe the maybe it turned that way i remember it's like regular size when it launched but mm. it's very it turned it's double size what if issue 36 what if the fantastic four had not gained their powers by john Byrne? <laughs> spoilers if you think the answer is there's still the what if and John Byrne spends a couple of pages redoing the origin of the Fantastic Four, <laughs> you're right. John Byrne, especially 1980s John Byrne, could not get out of bed without retelling someone the origin of the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses would come to his door and before they had said, have you heard the word, he would be like, have you heard... About the four American heroes who went up in space and got hit by cosmic rays? Yeah. They, they didn't want to. Reed took them up there, and they thought they were going to be the first. But then it went tick-tack, tick-tack. And they, they were like, I'm burning! And then they fell down to Earth, and Thing was like, oh, I'm a rock man made of poo. <laughs> and they were like, where's Susie? <laughs> <laughs> He just every everywhere. Holy shit, John Byrne! Uh, in this, what if the inciting incident that changes everything mm-hmm. is that Ben's like, "I'm not fucking flying it," and Sue's like, "Oh, come on, fly it," and Reed's like, "Well, maybe we should wait a while," because they wait a while. Uh, first of all, Johnny and Sue don't fly it. Yeah. They have two other astronauts who. Never get mentioned, like never even appear on panel, which right. is which I love. Mm-hmm. NASA's provided us with two experienced astronauts, said Reed. That's great, because you'll never see them. <laughs> never. But the shield told they don't get hit by cosmic rays. Instead, they land three days later on an alien planet. Yep. What alien planet? Hope you're not interested in that either, because it doesn't matter. They come back down to Earth. They're treated as heroes, and then they become the challengers of the fucking unknown. Exactly. Exactly. And in fact, I have to say, this is one of those things where I kind of hated myself for my laziness because I, at certain points, I actually genuinely wondered if there were, as we know, um, 
Byrne takes the sort of what ifness of the first issue of the Fantastic Four and has them encounter the Mole Man, and you see sequences right out of the comics done slightly differently or a different character in a different situ- context, very much the way that you sort of uh, would expect from an issue of what if. And uh, But I wondered how much of it had um, bits and pieces that are meant to make you think of the challengers, you know, in very discreet ways, like when they're rappelling down the inside of the cliffside or something like that. I'm like, didn't they do that inside a volcano in the challengers' first appearance and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, basically, Burn. Um, well, what do you think of the story? I mean, I love the challenges of the unknown, uh, but I felt kind of pretty bored by this issue in a lot of well, ways. Well, it's 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 the most dull version of this story. Mm-hmm. What if the Fantastic Four didn't get their powers? Ah, they're still the Fantastic Four. They just don't call themselves the Fantastic Four, but they're still having adventures together. And nothing else has really changed. In fact, they even have the same adventure as they have in FF issue one. Right. Like, it's it's the most... It's actually points towards, you know, the, the same anal fanboyish nature of Burn. Yeah, exactly. That you were talking about earlier on. Mm-hmm. You know, that he can't look beyond the... Well, anything can happen now. And instead, he's like, well, think about it. If they didn't gain their powers, the Mole Man would still appear. And I guess they'd still have to take care of that because there's no other superheroes at this point. So, hmm, they'd have to take care of the Mole Man while not having their powers, but they'd probably still wear blue jumpsuits. Because why were they wearing the blue jumpsuits in the first place? Hmm, yes. And it, it's it's really, it is... It's, Again, it's, it's burn very, dependent, like, you know? Yeah, um, it, it is an incredibly pedantic story. You well, know, and, and it's it's... It's kind of not fun. Like, the fun of what if isn't just, oh, this thing didn't happen or this thing did happen. Right. It's what happens. It's the butterfly effect. Yeah. And right. Burns like, oh, there's no such thing as a butterfly effect, though. Yeah, yeah. Except it... in a butterfly, and that butterfly's dead. Everything else still happens. Exactly. Burn, Burn is uh, sort of the same way that it's it's not fun. Is is You've got the same sort of burn the scold and burn the pendant doing this is is that it's clear and i you know i read maybe the first 18 25 issues of what if not not thoroughly at the time and they were pretty into the idea of like if something didn't happen exactly the way that it was meant to happen things more or less go horribly wrong and so I think Byrne at this point was kind of fed up with these stories of like, you know, Bucky, you know, fuck, just because Bucky doesn't die doesn't mean that Captain America is going to become like addicted to skag and is shooting up in the alley with like Conan the Sumerian who got displaced in time by fucking yeah. Baron Zemo and now they're both pimps like his thing which is it, which is like which is the fun part of for, right. what if exactly like, you're like, okay, sure, right. Yeah, you know, there there is there is something that could be a lot of fun with it, but but Burns point and it's in a way it's w- appropriate but also really deadly dull here is the idea that the FF are the FF because of who they are, you know, not because of their powers. And, you know, let's face it, at least in the context of Mr. Fantastic Burns got a point, you know. 
because Reed Richards ends up solving things by being absolutely fucking awesome and knowing everything, just as here, you know, uh, whether or not he's got his powers. One of the things that I think is interesting about this is, is that the first page where Byrne is retelling the story of the FF, and I guess a little bit on the second page, is that Byrne is telling the quote-unquote legit origin on the first two pages, but he is doing the sliding timescale version of it, you know? Uh, when Ben Grimm, like, pounds the desk and the phone flies up, it's a touch-tone phone. And, yeah. you know, when the rocket launches into space, Byrne is like, yeah, it's a two-stage rocket, you know, because that's how you fucking get into space. But there's a little bit of the awareness that, and, and even in that sense, the idea that the FF in the what if version aren't just trying to go to the moon they're using then an experimental star drive that's going to get them to another planet is burn being like hey the ff are not doing this in 1963 you know this is yeah well well in in the retelling on the first two pages he's yes. entirely dropped the we have to beat the reds exactly even we have to go to the moon right it's we have to do it now or we'll get our funding cut off right Right, exactly. Well, I mean, it, again, the the touch tone phone, the touch button phone is that is not something you know. That's a relatively late development, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Sad, sad to say about our crazy world. Uh, but you know, it's so yeah. Burn is already in his fidelity, uh, also changing things, you know. And that's the other thing that is sort of interesting about Burns sort of nag of a, a scold of a story is, is that it's like, Hey, you guys, it doesn't matter what you do to them. The FF or the FF, um, you know, and so kind of consequently the flip side of that is, is the FF are sort of more or less eternal characters and can't age because otherwise someone like burn who's, you know, or in a way the sort of pedantic fanboyism that, that kind of lurks in the heart of so many of us, or at least did for such a chunk of time, is like these characters are a bajillion years old now at this point, you know? Mm -hmm. And even if you well, come I up mean, with some reason why they're not aging anymore after this. Reed, Reed and Ben fought in the Korean War. They fought, was it the Korean War? I thought it was World War II. Oh, they, maybe? It was because Sergeant, because they encountered Sergeant the Korean War as well. Oh, that could be as well. Maybe it was the Korean conflict, and I was wrong. I could have sworn it was World War II, but it probably was Korea. Although, I don't remember, because, you know, you got Sergeant Fury being like, Reed Richards, you're like one of the best counterintelligence guys we ever had. Blah, 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 blah. Yakada, yakada. Everyone loves Reed. <sighs> I love how you brought that up, and then you're like... Shut up, me. <laughs> Be quiet, Dad. I'm sorry I'm not Reed Richards, okay? Jesus. All right. Um... <laughs> uh, Annual 17. Because I, th I think we can say that What If 36 is... Uh, it's, it's genuinely an interesting oddity, but it's not an exciting one. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's the thing about What If. It's What If category stories fall into two... It's like, if the comic... After you read the story and you're like, that really should have been called... Who cares if? <laughs> or it, that's going to be the new series. <laughs> who cares yeah. if? Or wouldn't it be cool if? 
So, yeah. Uh, FF17, right. Legacy, which uh, is, um, I have to say, for, for people playing the home game, uh, was also part of where Jeff switched over to the GIT copies for good because the reproduction that they had on Marvel Unlimited was really weird. Did you come across oh, that? Or? No, I, I, read the, I read all the GITs anyway. It's, it makes sense. <laughs> they, they go for a faster read, if nothing else. So, um, it, it, yeah, the, the things fall out. So it's Legacy, and as Graham and I were saying, it is a the first half of it. Graham, uh, it's, it's Burn doing uh, an annual, the first half of which focuses entirely on the secondary character that he has brought to the table, Sharon, what's her name? Seltzer? Seltzer? Selick. Sharon Selick, yeah, because we, yeah. we made the Tom Selick joke. Yeah, and it literally is the first half. It, mm-hmm. It's a 38-page story, yeah. and up th- it takes until page 18 for the Fantastic Four to show up in the story. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, I really like those first 18 pages. I like them actually in the GIT uh, in the Marvel Unlimited because it's a page by page um, yeah. thing, and and it's that... a very slow build. Like the the yes. first seventeen pages are a very slow build, and that's what works. the The plot is basically Sharon's car breaks down, yeah, and she uh, enters into uh, the closest town in in a sort of roundabout way. First of all, she climbs over a fence to what looks like a farm. Uh, and discovers uh, instead of running water, they have running milk, mm-hmm. which she finds very strange. She is caught by the people who work on the farm who then take her to town, where she is told, basically, it's going to take a while for your car to get fixed. Um, why don't you just stay here mm-hmm. a while? And when she stays there, she starts getting sick, and she discovers that the garage is closed when she goes to check in her car. And when she complains to the police department, the police department is basically like, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Just just take it easy. Everything will be fine. And she continues to get sick. And she calls, uh, oh, what's her name? Oh, Julie Angel. Julie Angel. Mm-hmm. She calls Julie Angel to basically say something fucking weird is going on and gets cut off in the middle of that call. Mm-hmm. She leaves her hotel even though she's feeling sick and runs away to to try and escape and in the process gets a uh, phone box and calls the ff mm-hmm. only for the ff not to be there while this receptionist is taking the call the plants seem to come alive and kidnap sharon mm-hmm. and that's the first 17 pages of the comic yeah and it is done so slow Mm-hmm. And so unsensationally mm-hmm. that it really works. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're like, something is up. Like, mm-hmm. something is clearly up, but I don't know what the something is. And also, Sharon's just getting sick. Yeah. And she's kind of getting fucked up. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about the, the like, the, the, the low key kind of wrongness of it yeah. that really works. Yeah, it it really is. Uh, it's it's one of those things where it burns tendency to kind of drag out his pacing a little bit uh, is works to great effect here because it it again it does have that that horror movie sort of feel. In fact, it's kind of a bummer. There's one scene that more, I think kind of openly 
um, burn flashes his hand, uh, so to speak, at the reader at about, I don't know, page something really far in, like page 10, where there's a boy on the street watching oh, yeah, um, yeah. Sharon. And he turns into a dog. Yeah, and I kind of wish they hadn't had that. Although, what's great is you do see the dog basically in the background and foreground is kind of always following Sharon until the next sequence where you see her in bed, sick. The police are lying to her. Um, she's more or less trapped in this town and feeling worse and worse. And then what's terrific is that sequence where everyone comes out of the town and starts following her and she flees off into the forest and there's one point where she looks back, you know, through this field and sees that all of the villagers are silently following her um, and not at any fast pace. And it's great. That slow, deliberate pace really works very well. Unfortunately, the second half of the book where the FF are like, we're going to covertly go in and investigate leads to i don't know graham i basically john byrne being like at last what i've always wanted to do after years of recapping ff number one is i get a chance to recap ff number two so well not even recap i get to do the sequel to ff number two and yeah to be honest i think he plays his hand too quickly in the second half i i think so as well Byrne, Byrne has been very 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 deliberately slow in the first half yeah. and yet it takes four pages of the second half mm -hmm. for Reed to go, oh, it's the cows. It's the scroll cows from FF number two. Oh, yeah. that's that's exactly where she is. And yeah. from that point, in fact, honestly, as soon as Johnny shows up, which is page 18, mm -hmm. it feels like a really different comic. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I think this annual 17 is by far the best comic in this this episode, like in mm -hmm. all of the we're talking about. But... Mm -hmm. The difference in quality between the first half and the second half of this comic is dramatic. And it's yeah. entirely because as soon as the FF come into it, it becomes an FF comic. And it well, and it, beca it becomes a burn FF comic too, which yeah. I think is and also it, kind of important. successful before that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Byrne, again, being kind of the guy, he's like, well, of course the FF, it's Reed Richards. He's going to figure this out. Is soon, you know, I'm going to give up the game this quickly. And part of me is like, even if Byrne had cut away from that revelation and we knew that Reed knew it, the, the fact is, is that by giving it up to the reader, it doesn't, it's, it, it ends up being not especially interesting. And then, unfortunately, apart from a couple of action scenes aside, I feel like there's so much. There's the one-page sequence where the thing pulls the FF car out of the U-Haul truck and Reed basically pesticide sprays the entire town while Sue and Johnny exposition the shit out of it is followed up by another page actually of burn is it's, it really sucks the, the energy out of it in that he has in the first half, you know, which is a weird, slow, well, deliberate there's, energy, there's, admittedly. But what is really interesting to me is there is a page where Johnny discovers Sharon in the hotel room. Yes, and that is happy as the as the early part of the book because you see her and she is tied to bed. 
mm-hmm. and there are empty milk cartons around her. Yes. And that genuinely is creepy again. Yeah. It's like, like Sharon is in a better, creepier comic. Mm-hmm. And even when Sharon runs into the FF again, take the FF into her scary comic as, yeah. to the, as to the other way around. And then they have to rescue her. Yeah. You know, and it's like, with that, that bit is, is, is again, you're like, oh, this, this is... This is a better comic. This is yeah. the comic I want to read. And it's a yes. shame because, as you say, you know, they rescue Sharon. Mm-hmm. And Sharon's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And Sue pretty much is like, what if I give you a three-page exposition scene now mm-hmm. to, to explain for the readers who didn't read FF number two what's going on? And you're like, no. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. yeah. It's kind of a shame. The John Byrne who sort of wants to do different comics, who who likes to think of himself as sort of a, a master storyteller of all kinds of comics, is uh, basically checkmated and stalemated by the John Byrne who who does FF comics, and it's and it yeah. really is a shame. So yeah, so by the time you get to uh, the thing is in the milk. The mm-hmm. milk factory? I mean, I, what is it? It's a cat. Is it a milk factory? Who, who even knows? Uh, and he's fighting monsters because... Th- we should explain. What has been happening is the Skrull... Skrulls who were turned into cows in FF number two have been... Uh, people have been drinking the milk from those cows. They have been coming essentially f- infected by Skrull DNA. Right. And been mutated as a result. And now the FF have to save the town. You know, when it's like the FF fight monsters, it's again just it's so far from the, the where those first seventeen pages are, mm-hmm. and so much less interesting. Mm-hmm. But I that said, I do like the very last panel of this. Oh book, yeah, <laughs> which is the FF flying away, being like, "We took care of the milk. Everything's fine." And the mm-hmm. last panel is the Fantastic are flying away saying, we can be grateful no one of a more militaristic nature was exposed to the milk. And you see the milk being delivered to an army depot. Yeah. Like yeah, that's exactly. a great little kicker. That genuinely mm-hmm. is a great little kicker. Mm-hmm. Especially mm-hmm. because, uh, and the, the soldier says, hi Bob, you show weekly delivery. Right. But there's no, like there, I, I, as far as I know, there's never any follow-up from that. And I kind of love it. I kind of love they're just like, yeah, that's still kind of out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The no, idea, let's not forget, that would, that would later be uh, bastardized by Grant Morrison or Mark Miller for Skrull Kill Crew. Yes. Where they're like, ha, see how cool and hip and edgy we are? This is going to be great. They this got isn't... turned into burgers, you guys. <laughs> That's actually the plot, Jeff. Yes, I know. I'm. I read the first issue of Skull Skull Krill Crew Kill. Ugh, I can't say it, but Skull I read it, and crew. I read no. Read yeah, it's a tough one. Scroll Kill Crew. Scroll Kill Crew. Scroll Kill Crew. Originally called Cree Kill Crew. Oh man! Uh, before Marvel realized what the acronym would be. <laughs> was it really going to be the Cree Kill Crew? No, of yeah, course not. Yeah. But that, really, that's yeah, awesome. That, that was the original pitch. Yeah. Wow. And then they caught on. And then, oh, those like, lads! That's our yeah, you know, That's that, that's our grunt. Really, that's <laughs> probably Mark Miller laughing up his sleeve. That's what people do now, Jeff. They laugh up their sleeves. Yeah, that's now that I now that I am old, I can tell you, Graham. It's nothing but nothing but. <laughs> now that I am old. 
you know what I found out today? This is a complete digression, but I just want to pass it on because I was surprised by this. The median age of America is 38. Really? More people in America were born after 1979 than before. Wow. Isn't that kind of amazing? Is it? I guess. Also, I mean, it's... we're old. We're old. Yeah, definitely. No, I was I was looking at some chart uh, that was also kind of like, uh, you're 50. You're older than this much percentage of the population. And you're younger than this much percentage of the population. And I was like, holy fuck, I'm old. Holy fuck. I mean, you know, 50. You're old. Sure. 50. But, you know, there's that whole denial of death thing where you're like, yeah, I'm old, but I'm not that fucking old. I mean, you know, sure. I haven't taken care of myself. But look at the people who took care of themselves. They still look young. And who knows? Maybe if I get my act together, I can still be kind of young-ish. You know, like I can I can hop on that train. But then you look at the charts and you're like, holy shit. There's so few people that are older than me because they all start dying after this. Holy fuck. Wow. Whereas the people who are all younger than me they're young they're not dying as quickly so there's a lot more of them they're oh, not I... dead yet exactly yet <laughs> yet yeah so uh yeah thanks graham thanks for that 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 helps me feel a lot better uh that is shall we shall we that... embrace the inevitability of death by going through fantastic for annual 18 oh jesus it really is like that isn't it <laughs> i have to say that fantastic four annual 18 is the idea that um you know what what is it the 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 idea that you sort of the same way that people until the morgan besser report uh believed that there was no way that you could have uh two positives make a double negative you know how like you can have like two negatives a double negative wants, is actually who wants a to make a right jeff <laughs> I, everyone knows that that's right two, two wrongs two, don't make a right two, but two rights right. make the first airplane ah that, that yes. was that was one of my grandmother's favorite jokes was it that is yeah. that is god bless graham that is lovely uh the ff annual 18 is sort of like what if you take two super great ideas and you push them together uh into a horrible unpalatable mass uh, and let, let's be honest about this. The two ideas here are great. Like they, they genuinely are. are good ideas. Yeah. And they go together into a really, really dull comic. Yeah. Unbelievably. Unbelievably. The two dull. annuals the, the two sorry, the two ideas on show in Fantastic Four Annual eighteen are this. One, it is, as the cover says, at long last, the wedding of Black Bolt and Medusa. If you think, wow, they weren't married before not only do characters in the comic actually say that, but it's true. How come those characters weren't married before? I genuinely thought they were. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but apparently not. Uh, and two, and this is the part that when I was talking about this uh, in the last Baxter building, I was saying, oh, Jeff, this this will be an annual you'll love. John Byrne revisits Uncanny X-Men 137. Again. Of, of course he does. Yes. Uh, to say that the Cree and Skrull observers of the fight between the X-Men and the Imperial Guard uh, got into a fight and ended up fighting so much between the two of them that they missed the end of the X-Men's fight and then <laughs> kept fighting for months yeah. until the Watcher eventually was like, will you fucking knock it off? Yeah, You guys are bozos. 
why don't you talk to your parents? And the supreme intelligence of the Grey Empire and the Empress of the Skrulls said, we've been talking and you guys should just keep fighting. But whoever <laughs> wins will win the war between the Kree and the Skrulls. Right. Which is kind of a great idea. I mean, it's also, like, dumb. Dumb in a good way. Yeah. No, it's totally dumb in a good way. It's totally that whole idea that that sort of resonates of the stories you hear about those guys they find out on the islands who didn't know that World War II were over, you know. It's a little bit of enemy mind, the idea that you've got two dudes who are enemies and are more or less trapped on, uh, stranded in a foreign location long enough that the line between their... Anim- uh, their enmity and their amity eventually um, uh, almost all but disappears. You know, it's they're they're kind of grown. It's we mentioned Byrne because he does the plot, but actually it's Mark Bright who uh, at this stage was sort of the poor man's John Byrne and Mark Grunwald. Oh, Mark Grunwald. I honestly thought that Byrne wrote, Byrne wrote nope. to be right. Byrne Byrne only plotted it. Yeah. <laughs> so, which may help. In, in some ways for the, again, not especially subtle, but, you know, Grunwald is a little quirky. The characters, when you see them busting things up, like, for months, uh, they're all but, you know, the the um, Ralph Wolf and, oh no, maybe Ralph's the sheepdog and what's the name of the wolf? You know, from the Chuck Jones cartoon. Like, they're kind of punching the clock. You know, they're sort of they're fr- they're frenemies of of the deadliest well, well, kind, which is which is kind of the plot ultimately. Exactly. So uh, the wedding of Black Bolt and Medusa, because the Inhumans are now on the moon, gets interrupted by the two these two guys fighting. Yeah. And in first of all, the the Inhumans and the FF try and stop them fighting by fighting them, only mm-hmm. to get their asses kicked. Yeah. And then they decide that what they should do is instead team up against the two of them, forcing the Kree and the Skrull to team up themselves Yeah. Uh, to, to fight off the assembled force. In doing so, the Watcher shows up and goes, hey, you guys, it's a draw because you guys should clearly be working together. Don't you see the end of the fight? Right. It's, and... it's, a, it's, it's one, again, it's one of these stories that is more fun in the telling than in the reading. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. 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 You know, because again, it's it's one of those ones where, like, as as we're summarizing, I'm like, see, all of that sounds good, but mm-hmm. the reading the issue is kind of exhausting and how boring it is. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. Uh, it's just it's overly busy. Uh, I think everyone realizes that sort of as good an idea as it seems on paper. Well, I mean, part of it, of course, is also the fact that you've got Grunwald being very excited to spend some time talking about how awesome the city of Adeline is. And is this the issue? Is this the actual debut of Black Bolt's atrocious real name and Medusa's atrocious real name? No, I'm fairly sure Black... Of it? I'm, I don't think so. I want to say Blackguard Boltagon existed for some time before this. Okay. All right. I, I do not know. So, because I, I have not been paying attention. But it's... Uh, you know, it's. it's I think Black uh, Bolt's gun might even be a Kirby invention. It would not surprise me. It, it wouldn't surprise me. Okay, that's fine. I take your word for it. Uh, but so there's a lot of 
minutia, but ultimately I think there's a lot, despite the idea of like, it's a great high concept, it's a little hard to believe that the Fantastic Four and the Inhumans cannot take out one scroll and one Kree. Well, no, you know what yeah, I mean? It's, like, kind of, it's kind of nuts. Like, it's, the fact that all of them yeah. couldn't defend, especially when they take them on individually at first. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like, really? Yeah. Really? With everything else, you guys, especially considering you took a fucking city to the moon? Yeah. Right? You know, there, there's just, it's just a very odd, like, I can't believe you want me to believe this. Also, the blue flame, like, there's a huge chunk of the story that, that comes from this wall of blue flame that, that pops up from underneath a plate of moon rock that is so powerful, it it almost kills She-Hulk, and Johnny is only able to more or less save them by absorbing all of it into himself and then discharging it at the proper moment and thus, you know, being able to save uh, both Karnak and Mr. Fantastic at the last moment. But do we ever find out where that fucking shit came from or why? Like, Nope. And again, yeah. you, you think you would. You think there would right. actually be some payoff because the Johnny absorbing the blue flame takes a, a fair chunk of real estate. Yeah. And so yeah. you'd think that they would be like, and here's why this is important other than it's blue flame. Yeah. But no. Right. No, there's yeah. not anything. It's it's uh, it is again a really interesting idea. Mm-hmm. But the problem is the execution is very dull in large part because they do just spend so much time fighting. Yeah. Well, the and, end of... and yeah. The fight is not actually interesting at no. all. No. It's it's Mark Bright in his very, very, very early days. And he's got some stuff that kind of, I'm like, oh, yeah, gosh, I remember some of the stuff that I like about Bright. And then there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, ugh, yeah, Bright, duh, the storytelling here. You well, know, but... Bright, Bright in later years is a much better artist than he is here. Oh, absolutely. This like, is this really, really, really early really like work Bright's from work. him. No, yeah. no, no, no. It's superficial. It's super early in his career. And again, sort of the way that we bitch about annuals, this is the flip side. Like I said, it would be wonderful if annuals were like, oh, they're given to the masters who can't quite draw, you know, on a monthly basis. But really, in reality, it's like, oh, here's the not ready for primetime player audition. Like, these are guys who need to learn their chops and also can't necessarily we can't rely on them for a deadline so we've got something well, that we can well, put you together well you say that but if this is 84 mm-hmm. then would bright not be on um Paramount and iron fist by now he uh, might be i i, I want definitely definitely that book ends 2 years after this and i, well, I was say about to on say there at least 2 years before that that book canceled uh, could be. I mean, he could have gotten this and then moved to that. He could have done this earlier. It's true. You know. we, do, we have no idea how long in advance uh, this was done. Uh, honestly, the, the I mean, it's been a long time since I've read those issues, but the 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 bright, and maybe I'm just thinking of it toward the end even, but the, the bright that's there is a little more assured than what is here. On the other hand, it's a fucking challenge. There's not a lot of people who can do action scenes that are going to have all of the Fantastic Four and the Inhumans battling 
basically one scroll and one Cree, and you're supposed to get the sense of, oh, yeah, and this is a more than fair fight. In fact, well, everyone's yeah. getting their ass kicked. I, 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 but Bright doesn't do himself any favors. Uh, you see the Cree in what is supposed to be like a, a cutting-edge robot suit. Yeah. And that's a terrible design. Yeah, it's true. I mean, true. really genuinely, you know, he's in a golden armor with super skinny arms. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know? It, yep. Yeah, it, it's it's not very effective. Uh, one of the things that I do love about this story, though, which I think would be great, because this very much is in the um, the burn era. Like you said, you're shocked that he didn't write it. He did plot it. Is I, I sort of love the idea that that Reed Richards continues to make the universe worse. I would love, you know... <laughs> Because the idea that, that Byrne <laughs> explores with the trial of Galactus is by saving Galactus, people actually have to put Reed on cosmic trial because it's like, hey, you fucking idiot. What? Why did you save Galactus? Similarly, the idea that the Kree and Skrull, who have been at war forever, essentially, on an idea by Reed Richards, combine. You know, and everyone's like, what a great idea. No one else would have ever have thought to, like, basically make these two come together. And I'm like, the idea that the Korean Skrull are basically two groups of terrifying warriors that are now united and realize the only way that they can forge their, um, keep, keep the alliance is essentially to declare war on everyone else and become a terrifying multi-power. It's clear that Reed Richards has fucked everyone over. The Richards actually says. Does he say that? That the two of them should, uh, I've been granted authority to determine who has won the war. Hereby it's clear that you're both the winners and it is the earthlings that have lost. Right. It's like he's going, hey, you know what you guys should do? The ultimate solution to your eons old conflict lies only in your cooperation. You have proven that this day by fighting humans. Hey, you yeah. guys, why do you guys work together and fight humans? Exactly. And then, and then after they go away, it's like, looks like your plan paid off, Richards. I'm like, yeah, great job, dick. You managed to take two super empires, combine them, and basically realize the only way they can hold together. So I would love to see this play out where the Kree Scroll Alliance is devastating the entire the galaxies and everyone's like, oh the misery, who brought this upon us? If we're lucky, Galactus will eat us and we won't have to be suffering anymore. You know, it's like it's all Reed Richards. Ding. You know, it's uh it's kind of brilliant. That would that would be a great what if. That would be that would be wouldn't what it? what if the Korean scrolls did declare war on humanity and it's just all everyone being like read you fucking dick <laughs> in what fucking worlds was this a good idea seriously Reed, I thought you were meant to be a genius and he's yeah. like I like machines okay I don't understand emotions everyone's like you guys genius is not an all purpose term people have areas of specialty okay I gotta admit, not every idea is a good idea. That's why there's science, so I can test them and figure out what's a bad idea. I'm in the field. Cut me some slack. It's like, yeah, but you did also save Galactus. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> why would you listen? Fucking John Burton came into space, and then they showed me what Galactus thought, or whatever the fucking end of that plot was. We all oh, went, ooh. Wait, I was, was right, best. okay? <laughs> 
fucking John Byrne said. Fucking uh, took him into space. You know, that I, might happen here. Did I ever tell you that that was the idea that I thought was really sad? I, I guess I never did. It's, what do you mean, which really sad? Sad as in, like, pathetic or sad as in unhappy? Sad in both. Is the idea that, like, can you imagine how much sadder it would be to do a sequel about a cartoonist who's drawn into the cosmos and is shown the nature of reality along with a group of handful, like, literally sees the purpose of the universe and everything and our place in it and 40 years later runs a forum where he trolls his own posters you know what i mean like isn't that like the saddest oh fucking thing you know what that's just made me think what does marvel have the rights to john Byrne? they do i i mean i don't know i mean of course I'm think sure about they it. grant like... morrison showed up in suicide squad after he appeared in animal man oh did he <laughs> Did, did you not know that? No, I didn't know that. That's Scott Morrison great. gets killed in an issue of Susan. <laughs> I didn't know that, Graham. That is, yeah, that is Morrison, genius. Scott Morrison shows up, and I think he's just referred to as the writer. Oh but he, my he God. shows up in, in Suicide Squad and gets killed and like writes his own death scene just before it happens. Oh. It, was that Ostrander writing that, or...? Yeah, Who yeah, it's it's like it's one oh of the God. last few issues of that that run. But yeah, that is fucking awesome. I had no idea. I had no idea. But yeah, I mean, if you think about it, one of the things that's really scary about Marvel is kind of they're like, yeah, we we own the likenesses of you know we have the we have the copyright IP on Stanley and Jack Kirby and John Byrne and anyone who's popped up in Marvel comics, which is pretty much. Everyone up to a certain point in Marvel Comics. Like, oh the whole God. idea wouldn't that, that... Wouldn't that be so great? Like, It'd if they be... were just... And they didn't even call him John Byrne. They just called him John. They like, just they just him. had a, an issue where a bearded writer called John yeah. is, like, goes, I once knew the, I once knew what all the universe was about, but they made me forget. And they now, made me they, forget. And yeah. now I'm taking it out on completely random strangers on the internet. Well, but if you think and about you can have it, Ben Grimm show up and be like, "Dude, they, they made me forget as well. It's okay, get over it." No, no. But I mean, this is the thing: is the worst part is it's totally internally consistent. Like, let's face it: the if you are shown the nature of the universe, even if you f are made to forget it, you're still left with that feeling that you really know what's going on, right? And that's how John Byrne has continued to act. John Byrne has remained shockingly in character from the John Byrne of the comics, where he's like, no, you're wrong. <laughs> Sue Storm is a Hispanic, looks like a whore. And it's kind of like, really? That's what happens when you're allowed to see the inner workings of the universe is you end up being like a really depressed, racist bigot who is kind of iffy about fulfilling your commissions? I mean, come on, it is a fucking amazing Fantastic Four annual that is waiting to happen. It is like the meanest fucking comic you could imagine. Even worse than when they called him Rooster Cogburn and, you know, his robo-spine broke out of his uh, the back of himself and Destroyer Duck. It's amazing. It really is. Anyway, so that's very sad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, dear listeners, to the strangest episode of Baxter Building. <laughs> For, for quite some time. I, I think, uh, weirdly, I 
do think that Jeff, you and I have treated these issues with exactly as much respect and attention as they deserved. I think so, if not a little I... more so. <laughs> oh no! I mean, <laughs> I, I, it's sadly true, though. The, I think I think we've done I think we've done our job. Yes, we have, we've done all we could. <laughs> You're welcome, listeners. We brought it in relatively short because Jeff is not well. Good job, everyone. I think. Oh, I love the idea that you think that the reason why we brought it in on time is is that I was oh, no, too sick to have... go off no. into my. It's because we have have nothing to say about these comics. I was about to say there were five comics and they run the gamut to eh, pretty good to oh wow that was that was one wow it's amazing it was published was something that you said have, no less have, than like I, three times i have a que- i have a question yes this is the second time you said there's five comics and there's six which one are you forgetting i don't know i can't it's do you remember that one time that we were trying to figure out like <laughs> you for, you forgot one of the months like it's for me i'm like 18 minus 14 is four plus the what if and it's five but admittedly, that's because I'm not counting 14 as its own entity. So you're right. It's is it six comics? I mean, it's six comics. But that, I, I honestly, more than I think, I just love the idea that you blacked one out. I have like fucking that Dragon Lord one was terrible. We've read well, five comics. You, there are you know five lights. That's right. There, there are five annuals. Anyway, uh. I would say that the the problem is is I'm going to blame it on the fact that I I read Annual 14 earlier and reread it this time. It yeah, no, that, that's that fine. Fly. Yeah, that's There's that's a... fine. I am going to take this moment to tell you that the next episode of Baxter Building, which will be in a month's time, dear mm-hmm. patient, patient motherfucking listeners, uh, we are just going to do a handful of issues. We're just going to do uh, 271 through 277 because. Uh, 278 starts a cycle of stories. If we continued all the way through, we'd be doing like 14 issues. Because 278 two goes runs through 285. Yeah, wow. runs through two runs through 284. So we'd be we would be doing 14 issues. Which okay. let's not, Jeff. Yeah, I don't think that's a good. Two, 271 through 277, uh, and oh, we get awesome. some we get some great stuff in there. And I'm not actually sure how sarcastic I'm being when I say that because there's there's <laughs> there's some genuinely weird stuff in there, if nothing else, mm-hmm. uh, including the return of the thing, mm-hmm. and also the She-Hulk porn issue, because that's oh, right, Action yeah. Comics wasn't the only comic where <laughs> John Byrne brought porn into it. Oh, John Byrne. Yeah. It, yeah. was, it was the 80s, and John, I guess, was trying to legitimize porn. I really have no idea. I guess, except he wasn't, because in both cases, like the porn guys are like the worst. So I guess yeah. he was on an anti-porn crusade. I don't even know. Yeah. He was weirdly obsessed with porn, put it that way. <laughs> anyway, next time, 271 through 277. In the meantime, I will tell you the show notes for this episode will, if it is not already up, in fact, it won't be, because this Baxterville normally goes live on a Sunday and show notes normally go up on a Monday. There will be show notes at waywatpodcast.com. You will find additional internet things from Wait What. Wait What Industries, as I said earlier on, on waywatpod.tumblr.com, on Twitter, at Wait 
podcast. Jeff is on Twitter at LazyBasted, at L-A-Z-Y-B-A-S-T-I-D. And I am on Twitter at Graham M. That's G-R-A-E-M-E-M. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast. The Baxter Building episodes exist purely thanks to the kindness of almost strangers. Jeff, I said Patreon. Do you want to do some talking? I will try. Uh, I apologize in advance uh, if I keep this uh, even more short um, and less perambulatory than usual. I'm a little sick, but nonetheless, we are incredibly grateful to the people on Patreon who uh, throw a little bit of cash our way to um, make us feel appreciated uh, and sort of as a way to say to us, as they actually literally have in various emails and messages, thanks, you guys. They've listened for years. They felt like giving a little something back. And like I said, as a result of it, we were able to uh, work our little tailbones off to bring you this episode of the Baxter Building. Um, so we're grateful to uh, all of our listeners, honestly, everyone who listens to us. We really are very grateful, but we're also really grateful to the people on Patreon uh, who make this all possible, including the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Especially grateful to them for their continuing support of this podcast and also for not atomizing us into quantum particles. We thank you. That's oddly specific. Normally, the the joke is just not ending the 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 Earth, but atomizing is a is a new level of specificity. Yes, I was inspired by the description of the scrolls as basically living unstable molecules. Which I was. Are kind we of a fun all idea. though? But aren't we all? If you think about it, it's true. Some of us are more unstable than others, Dad. So. Um... <laughs> That's the second time this episode you've called me that. How about Dad? I didn't even notice. I I don't know how I feel about that. Especially after your whole, well, obviously, Dad's and sons have the worst relationship. (laughs) I'm like, wait, guys, you might just have listened to the last Baxter Building ever. I think Jeff's saying he hates me. We'll be back with Baxter Building in a month. We'll be back with the Wait What in two weeks, right? Next week is our skip week, or am I misremembering that, Jeff? Uh, I don't know, Dad. Let me check the calendar. Next week <laughs> is a wait what, and then after that yes. is a skip okay. week. So we'll be back next week with a wait what, then a skip week following that, and then another wait what after that, and then after that, it's a Baxter building. You can do your math with weeks and work out when that is. Let's just call it a month. <laughs> Thank you very much, as always, for listening. And because it is a Baxter building, Jeff will sing and dance out. Yes, I will. I just wanted to say, Dad, I love you. Why don't you like me? I don't understand. I've tried so hard. I've tried so hard to please you in so many ways. I look at this amazing stick that looks basically like a branch, but supposedly controls all the dragons. All of them, Dad. Not just the one that I fucked, but all of them. Love me. Love me. Anyway, and we'll see you next time in the lobby of the Baxter Building.